Alpha and Omega, the story we find ourselves in. Chapter 6, The King's Place for His People, The Land. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and the death of Moses, God instructed Joshua to lead Israel into the Promised Land. Joshua was a successor to Moses who led God's people into the Promised Land. He had served and been mentored by Moses for years. Joshua had a heart for God and often lingered at the tent of meeting in God's presence after Moses finished praying. He was one of the twelve spies into Canaan, but only he and Caleb urged the people to trust God in advance. The people knew Jacob and had seen him in proximity to leadership for years. He was commissioned by Moses in front of the people, took over leadership at Moses' death, and in both instances was encouraged by God in the same way. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you may go. Israel's crossing over into the Promised Land. The border of Canaan was marked by the Jordan River, which when they arrived was overflowing with spring floods. Joshua told the people to get ready, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. God caused the flood-staged Jordan River to stop flowing so the people of Israel walked across Canaan in, on dry ground. When the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of Yahweh with his people, put one foot in the rushing river, the waters drew back and the people walked across on dry ground. That sound familiar? A series of ceremonies marked this momentous occasion. Joshua directed one man from each tribe to pick up a stone from the middle of the riverbed, and the twelve stones were stacked on the shore as a reminder to future generations of what God had done there. Next, all the males who had been born during the forty years of their wilderness wandering were circumcised as a signal of their submission to the covenant. Finally, the people observed the Passover for the first time in the Promised Land, remembering God's deliverance and mercies. The next morning, for the first time in 40 years, there was no manna on the ground to gather, because the people were home and eating the produce of God's promised land. Israel had come to take possession of the land, so Joshua prepared to lead them into battle. Before the first battle, he met face-to-face with the sword-wielding commander of the Lord's army, again, probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, and was told to take off his sandals, for he was on holy ground. Again, does that sound familiar? It is a continuity with the purpose of God that began with Moses. The battles at Jericho and Ai marked a great victory followed by a crushing defeat that trained Israel to advance into the promised land with obedience to God and humility. Jericho was the first fortified city to be attacked in Canaan. Joshua followed God's unique battle plan, march around the city in silence for six days in a row, following the ark, And the seventh day, walk around the city in silence seven times, then blow horns and shout. The people obeyed. The walls fell flat, and Jericho was taken. Now, God had also instructed that everything and everyone in Jericho was to be destroyed as an act of submission by Israel and of holy judgment on Jericho. But one man disobeyed, taking some silver, some gold, and a really nice robe, and burying them under his tent. Israel's next battle was against a much smaller city, Ai. Flushed with victory, Joshua sent only a small force 
and Israel was routed. Thousands died. Joshua grieved and sought the Lord, who made the problem clear. It was that one man's disobedience. Once the guilty party was identified, judged, and the people repented, Israel moved forward with God's favor and power and won the victory. These lessons of the joy of obedience and the pain of disobedience were going to be repeated in Israel's experience. To drive those concepts deep into their hearts, Joshua led a renewal of the covenant. All Israel gathered in a valley, half on one mountain, half on another. Joshua read the entire law of Moses aloud, along with all the promised blessings for obedience and the promised curses for disobedience. No one had an excuse. Everyone now knew the stipulations of their relationship with God and life as his people. For the next several years, Joshua led Israel on a series of military campaigns to conquer the land, moving steadily through Canaan to engage kings, tribes, and cities from the south to the north. God gave success, but it was a difficult task, and over time Israel simply grew lackadaisical and even comfortable with the pagan tribes who lived near them. By the time Joshua was an old man, much of the land remained unconquered. God instructed Joshua to divide the land among the tribes, assigning each a responsibility to fully possess the land God had promised. He was also to reserve some land specifically for the Levites and the priests. As he neared death, Joshua called the scattered people together again. Joshua's final challenge included a covenant renewal and a call for Israel to choose Yahweh over all other gods. The beginning and end of Joshua's leadership of Israel was marked by a renewal of the people's commitment to the Mosaic Covenant. As Moses had before him, Joshua reminded Israel of their story with God and of his faithfulness to all his promises through the years. But at the same time, he called them to follow the law explicitly. Be strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. You shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. He issued a stern warning against compromise and with the pagan peoples and their gods among whom they had settled. He said, Do not mix with these nations or mention the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them unless they wanted to experience the opposition and judgment of God that would destroy them. In the end, Joshua challenged them to fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods your father served and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people affirmed their desire to follow the Lord. Joshua's legacy was strong. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work the Lord did for Israel. After Joshua died and then the generation of those who had been part of the wilderness wandering and the crossing over into the promised land had died, the book of Judges recorded that there arose another, another generation who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. The people of Israel forgot Joshua's warnings and hesitated to press forward in their conquest of the land. They did not drive out the pagan tribes who inhabited Canaan and even began to settle with and intermarry with them. That compromise was blatant disobedience of God and unfaithfulness to Israel's covenant promises. 
it had spiritual and national security ramifications for Israel and set in motion what has been called the cycle of sin in Judges, which describes the steady downward spiral of the moral, spiritual, and political health of the people of God. There are five impulses described in Judges 2 that repeated over the years and shaped the narrative of the book of Judges. First, disobedience and rebellion. Joshua 2, Judges 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the pagan gods of the Canaanite tribes. They abandoned the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods and they provoked the Lord to anger. As a result of that, secondly, there was an experience of pain from God's judgment and opposition. So again, from Judges 2. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. In response to their unfaithfulness to the covenant, God withdrew his blessing and support. Israel's armies were defeated. Their settlements lived under constant threat, often experiencing a blockade of food or trade. Third, they would cry out for mercy and help. Out of their pain, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Fourth, then God would provide a deliverer or a judge and relief from God. In mercy, God answered their cries and provided a governmental military leader who would often front a military campaign that removed the threats of an oppressor and relieved their misery. Judges 2 again, and the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Scripture records specifics about a dozen judges. There are 11 men and one woman, Deborah, who led for as little as six years and as long as 40. These judges were not all spiritual giants. Some were simply brutal. Samson was not just a strong guy with long hair. He was led by his lust and passions for women. But God sovereignly used broken, even spiritually weak people to deliver his people, Israel. The prototypical judge was Gideon, a judge whom God used to call Israel to serve God rather than Baal and free Israel from oppression by showing his strength in Israel's weakness. When Gideon's story begins, Israel had been under siege by the Midianites for seven years. Gideon was threshing wheat in hiding to keep the harvest from the Midianites when the angel of the Lord appeared and greeted him. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon pushed back. And the Lord's with us, and he's the same God we hear about in all the stories. When's he going to do something about all this? The angel replied that what the Lord was going to do was to send Gideon to lead a rescue of Israel. Gideon resisted because he struggled with doubt and saw himself as the least likely to lead a revolution. He repeatedly asked for proof of God's presence, which was given with fire from a rock, heavy dew on a sheepskin left out overnight while the ground around it was dry, and then the reverse of that. Once he was convinced of God's reality, Gideon began to enact the Lord's plan, which began with a call to spiritual renewal. Gideon tore down the pagan altars in the town square of his community at night and then ran away in fear. But after his father joined him to urge the men to leave Baal and serve God, the people responded to Gideon's call to arms. As he had with Joshua years earlier, the Lord gave Gideon an unusual plan of attack against the Midianites. Through a series of questions and tests, God steadily reduced the number of Gideon's force from thousands 
the 300 men who would fight against the many thousands of Midianite warriors. Because here's what God said in Judges 7. The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. If they won this battle, everybody would know it was only because of God. Gideon divided his company into three companies of a hundred, set on three sides of the Midianite camp. On his signal in the night watch, they blew trumpets, smashed clay jars, raised torches, and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! That night, Israel routed Midian and threw off the yoke of their oppressors. Under Gideon's leadership, Israel won other victories and enjoyed 40 years of peace. This was typical of the experience of Israel under a judge. But remember, there was a fifth part of the cycle of sin, and that was their response to God's mercy. It was either repentance or continued rebellion. Sometimes after deliverance like this, Israel will be faithful for a season. But in the majority of instances, they steadily return to their patterns of rebellion. Here's what it says in Judges 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Generations of Israel grew up with this mixture of spiritual compromise and faithfulness to God. There was a sense of moral, ethical, and spiritual decline. Years of turmoil were followed by years of peace, and the whole process would begin again. Gradually, the sense of being part of a covenant people faded, and a kind of stubborn independence took hold of the hearts of the people. The book of Judges closes with a sigh. Everyone did what was right, in his own eyes. But in the midst of all the mess, there was still some beauty. The Bible tells the love story of Ruth and Boaz. Famine struck the land of Israel. A man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, who were all from Bethlehem, went to Moab, a pagan nation neighboring Israel, in order to survive. Stayed there for a long time. The sons married and things went well for a time, but eventually the men all died, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law destitute and vulnerable. One daughter-in-law returned to her family in Moab, but Naomi and Ruth made their way back to Israel, to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem in the territory of Judah. Ruth and Naomi were widowed and destitute, both physically and socially vulnerable when they returned. Naomi told her friends to give her a different name, Mara, which means bitter. Now, there was no social safety net in those days, so when they arrived in Bethlehem, Naomi sent Ruth to gather grain in the fields. God's law instructed harvesters to leave the edges of their fields untouched so that the poor could come behind them and gather grain. Ruth came home that night with more than enough grain to meet their needs and told Naomi that she had met the man who owned the fields, Boaz. Naomi's ears perked up. 
and she went quickly into matchmaker mode. Boaz was a wealthy man and a kinsman of Naomi, but yet unmarried. Naomi gave Ruth some traditional actions to perform with Boaz that served as a request for Boaz to take the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. This was a practice whereby one would serve as a protector of his extended family, taking on their debts and needs. But one additional aspect of that practice included the option of marriage to Ruth, who had already signaled that she was open to such an arrangement with Boaz. Boaz and Ruth did marry, and in time had a son named Obed. Where did that lead? Note these lines from the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel in the New Testament, which begins a genealogy of Jesus' earthly family. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And time went by, and it says, And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And so, the story of God's rescue through the coming Redeemer of the seed of Abraham and the line of Judah continues.